Hello, everyone, and welcome back to ESPN Scrum Reset. It's Sam Bruce. Join us ever by Christy Doran after uh, an unplanned, I guess, a 10-day hiatus. Uh, I've been off uh, traveling for work. Uh, nice to be in London. Uh, didn't get to see any Wimbledon, but I can tell you, Christy Doran, that the uh, the sun, the weather up in uh, Old Blighty was unbelievably fantastic. I've never seen anything like it. I don't think you really need to come back to little old Sydney down here and give us that reminder of what the sun is like. It is actually just coming through the window at the moment, which is nice. But uh, tell me, what, what was it like? Um, I'm not sure if you would have been on the plane by that point in time, but after the Wallabies and, and the English um, uh, match on Saturday, were you still there come the Sunday and get the reflections, get the papers, get the feel of what's happening? Certainly was, Christy. Yeah, I took in the game as a uh, as a fan, which made a, a nice change at a pub called The Sun, uh, just by out in Richmond, uh, Rugby Heartlands in, in London. Yeah. Um, might have actually been more Wallabies fans there than there was uh, locals, I thought. Um, certainly a, a 50-50 balance. But uh, yeah, as you know, there's uh, there's quite a few of the uh, the English rugby journalists out here traveling uh, with the team, which is great to see uh, on this tour. So interesting yeah. to gauge their reflections and, and I guess a bit of a wider, you know, absorb a bit of uh, UK broadcast coverage as well. Um, I'm not sure they're uh, they're convinced that that victory by England uh, has uh, has absolutely turned the page for this team under under Eddie Jones. But uh, but what it has done hasn't it made has set us up for a uh, a deciding game at the SCG on on Saturday night, which um, by all reports should go pretty close to uh, to filling out um, the SCG. Uh, I can't wait for that one. Before we get there, uh, we're going to go and take on a little bit more of a holistic view, I guess, of the weekend before we dig in a little bit more on the Wallabies in Australia. So I guess a good place to start, Christy, is um, at Forsyth Bar Stadium uh, in Dunedin from the weekend and um, a historic win for for Ireland, their first over the All Blacks in New Zealand in, uh, in what was a crazy game. Now, I didn't have access to um, Sky Sports in my hotel room and I didn't get around to sorting a VPN to uh, to sort, it, sort out Stan Sport so I could watch it remotely as well. So I was following this game on Twitter and I tell you what, it was one hell of a ride on Twitter. Uh, it was one hell of a first 40 and, and then a, a second 40 to, to round things out. Uh, Ireland fully deserving of their victory and I guess uh, reflective of, of what we thought um, late on in the November internationals last year. And I think we even did a podcast saying has, has world rugby ever been this close at the top end and um, you know, six months on, you'd have to say that uh, that's certainly gone up a level again. Yeah. You're not, you're not wrong. I, I, I've been saying it for a long while and this is why I think people need to just cool their jets a little bit when it comes to sacking coaches or, you know, is it, is it, is the, is the sky falling down when a, a side loses one or two? Um, let's be frankly honest. The, the, the four, four victories for the, the Southern Hemisphere powers, you know, the first weekend of rugby, and then that's flipped on its head a week later and, and the four the Northern Hemisphere sides. There's, there's not much between these two uh, the, these sides anywhere. And we'll come to the Wallabies in England, and that's why it was so hard to call initially. You look at New Zealand, what's happening there at the moment, and you and you think this is a New Zealand side that's completely in, in transition, and an Irish team that is it peaking once again between World Cups, and and I, I'm of the belief that they need to work out who the heck they well they know who their second playmaker is, but he hardly gets any minutes, and it's always the Johnny Sexton show. Uh, we saw that it was a crazy wild first forty minutes. It was actually not too dissimilar to what the Wallabies in England at Perth was like, where there was, you know, injuries, there was cards, there was a red card, there was a traumatic, there was theatre, there was, um, it wasn't particularly a, a pretty first half by any stretch of the imagine over in Perth. And that was quite the same, I think, in in uh, in Dunedin there, and under a chilly kind of roof. It's never particularly warm in, indoors, even though there is a roof there, isn't there? But they were, Ireland were, were good without being fantastic. I still think their attack at times is clunky. Um, I know that they run beautiful patterns, but for the um, the dominant possession, the territory for having um, uh, you know got a numerical advantage at times, they were up against the Hedin, and at times New Zealand didn't know how many players they were having on the field. That was quite a controversial moment in itself. But to only have that 10-7 lead at halftime 
wasn't nearly as much pay as what they needed. And that's where I just asked the question around Ireland. Do they have enough in them to score multiple tries? Um, and we, we saw that and we only saw what a couple of tries. Andrew Porter, your prop, diving over. That doesn't show much and tell much about your attack, does it? So, yeah, I think great victory, um, a drought-breaking victory in New Zealand. But but are Ireland, you know, are they a true number two in the world? Are they, do you see them making, progressing past the semifinals of a World Cup? There's still let's, so many questions about them. Let's start with the quarterfinals because they haven't been to a, a semifinal in the, what are we up to, um, 10 editions of the, the tournament nowadays. So, um, yeah, look, I, I, I think it's an excellent point you 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 raise there, Christy, around uh, this idea of of patterns and, and game plans. And every team goes into test matches with a game plan or perhaps a plan B, a plan C, God forbid, a plan D, if all those others aren't working. But what Ireland do, they have a very uh, designed way of playing, don't they? And yeah. um, it all is built around Johnny Sexton, as you said. And when he's not there, it does tend to, uh, to fall apart. But is this, I guess, um, leading into a World Cup, you know, it works in between. Perhaps why they've, they've struggled to to get past the the quarterfinals at least the last two tournaments is that um, you know that catches up with them. That people actually do work out this this island way of playing. Um, there's a lot of short passing at the line, a lot of balls out the back off Sexton, a lot of multiple runners. Um, but once teams get a grip on it, um, are they perhaps easily defendable? Um, and as you said, obviously made hard work of of uh, trying to run down a, a team that had 14 and then 13 men on the field at times in Dunedin on the weekend. So I, I guess that's probably, you know, something that's uh, that's in the back of the mind of, of Irish rugby fans out there, no doubt. And and whether, you know, Andy Farrell can um, develop this team even further. Again, they've got some clearly some world-class players in that team. And, um, you know, they have got uh, the crux of it that does come through the Le- Leinster system as we know. So the building blocks are there, but perhaps that does add to the predictability a little bit as well. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a couple of couple of things that I, I've, I've paid attention to that I don't know if it always gets drawn out as much because we know that in the UK, particularly in Ireland, that everyone is so focused on each, each win, each match. You know, the Six Nations, you've got to win every match, don't you? Because it's a real championship. Yep. I, feel, I feel like in, in the rugby championship, people just accept generally that the All Blacks will win. And once every four years, the Wallabies and the Springboks will do something. And, and you know, they might be competitive. Jagger win over New Zealand. And then all of a sudden, you go for that, that, that rugby championship. I don't think that's the case up north. And, and it feels like everything is geared towards that. And the autumn matches over there, like... If you, if, you, if you drop one, oh, whatever, you know, but you, you still want to win them all. And I don't know how much planning they really have towards a World Cup because let's be frankly honest, only one World Cup has been won by the North. Why is that the case? You know, England 2003. And, and you get so many people in the English media are, are calling for uh, Eddie Jones's head because they've had a couple of disappointing Six Nations campaigns. Like, let's... Let's just go like they, they won in 2020 and 2019 they make a World Cup final. Like they haven't, their standard of play hasn't been brilliant, but they're clearly going. And I can understand Eddie Jones wanting to win that World Cup because that's the only thing left in, in, in for him to conquer in his illustrious coaching career. But, but I just get the sense that with, with Ireland, you know, Johnny Sexton is the most one of the most injury-prone fly halves playmakers in the world. He's got a huge concussion history. He's, he's going to be 38 at the World Cup next year. What happens if he's not there? What happens if he gets a head knock? Because, you know, I, I, I almost think that, yes, it would be great if they get a serious win against the All Blacks, but you know what would be better? Developing your second playmaker. And, and at times, it always just seems like... Um, uh, and his name escapes me just for the moment, um, but it almost seems like the second playmaker Joey is Joey Carberry. Joe, Joey Carberry, yeah, is the is the afterthought of Irish rugby. And having an uh, afterthought as a playmaker has got to be the worst thing in the world because playmaking is all about confidence. Um, it's about having the belief in those around you and equally feeling like you belong. Uh, Ireland's got some issues because they need it. Every time that Carberry walks into the field, he's a good rugby player, but Ireland don't click when he's playing there. And 
and they should be. So they need to work out how do we get more minutes into this guy? And sometimes do you sacrifice a loss potentially to what's the greater good? And I think the greater good for Ireland is actually progressing past quarterfinal for once in a World Cup. What about the All Blacks then, Christy? Um, uh, as I mentioned, following on on, on Twitter on uh, on the weekend up in London, and I think one of the first post game reactions I I saw a post game that's called the hot take on Twitter, probably more appropriate for that particular <laughs> medium. Um, that the the All Blacks had now lost uh, three of their last four, and that the one they won. Uh, was uh, after a week where Ian Foster had spent very little time with the team at all through COVID. So, uh, I mean, clever, um, perhaps not all that insightful, but certainly um, it makes uh, it makes an interesting point. Um, and we see vision of, uh, of Scott Robinson uh, taking the Pacific Nations Cup um, a little further north in the, in the Pacific there on, on Saturday afternoon, uh, wearing an f- interesting fedora of choice. I'm not sure whether he was trying to go incognito or oh, he's that's, just, uh, that's just Razor's uh, get up. But uh, I mean, how big of a game does this become for, for Foster then this weekend? Um, we all know, we, I think it's probably agreed that it's, it's too late to be changing coaches um, this far out from the World Cup, but certainly a, a loss at home to um, an Northern Hemisphere team in a three-test series. Uh, I could, how long you'd have to go back to to find that in New Zealand, if it's even happened at all. I mean, we go back to the Lions series of, of 2017, which was drawn, of course, with with one test each and that, that final drawn test in, in Auckland in dramatic circumstances. But... Um, I mean, geez, Ian Foster, he still really needs a win this weekend. And and the one big selection that that I'd be making is um how have we not seen Will Jordan start? I know that was um there was COVID um first up, but came off the bench last weekend. Um he'd be one of the first names on, on that team sheet for me this weekend because he does possess that something, that little bit of brilliance that perhaps the the All Blacks are lacking in places at the moment. He can open a game up for himself. He was, you know, time and time again of the last variations of, of super rugby, whether it be Aotearoa or, or Pacific this year that, um, you know, he's continually among the, the elite players in the, in the competition. I'd, I'd be starting him this weekend. I, I think it's a good point. Uh, you know, you listen to a lot of coaches and you know, a lot of astute minds and they all say one thing, you've got to be a great selector. And I'm not sure thus far that we've seen Ian Foster proving to be a great selector. Um, I agree. Will Jordan's been the most um, consistent uh, fullback in, in the competition for a number of years. He's got that ability to find the try line, but he's also got that ability to make the difficult appear easy. He's got time up his sleeve. Is there a, is there a Bowden, or not just a Bowden, but is there a Barrett obsession within New Zealand rugby? You know, that if you don't pick two or, or three, you know, the in, the, in, the, fall in, yeah. in the starting squad, is there something to be bought into that? Because as much as as much as um, Geordie Barrett is talented, has got a huge boot on him. Is he? You know, he's hardly he doesn't play fullback really for the Hurricanes, does he? You know, he's often playing second five. Play a lot of there. twelve this year. Yep. Like we've been coming back to it for a long time that the All Blacks have got issues, and it didn't seem apparent after their massive win over Ireland in the first test, but I still think they've got big issues because they don't know how to solve that 12 conundrum. And they haven't since Manono left, you know, Sonny Bill did a, a reasonable job, but he was injured for a number of those years. And then they let go of Nani Laumapi, who seemed in my thought, the, the, the obvious choice to continue at inside center. Um, oh, it's a huge test. You're right. And people were saying, Oh, I'm not sure if you can if you can make the coaching switch at this stage. I I reckon that if Scott Robinson was given it with 12 months to go, he'd take it. But he would have it in obviously in his CV or in his, in his um in his contract that it's a two World Cup campaign that he's gotten through to 27. And I'll tell you what, New Zealand and Australia, I think that they would back themselves over here. It's conditions that would suit them to a T. It'd be a great build up. It would allow what. Um, France have done with Fabian Gauthier um, to do with the French, which has come in a year before the, the 2019 World Cup and build. Now, New Zealand wouldn't take a, a quarterfinal exit of next year's World Cup campaign. Absolutely not. But I don't, I don't see how the All Blacks win the World Cup under Ian Foster. Now, I mean, Chrissy, you've spoken with Scott 
Robertson recently, and I've spoken with him in the past. And we know it is, you know, it's the ambition that he wants to coach the All Blacks. He stated that. Yeah. Um, he mentioned in that article, that interview with yours uh, for Fox Sports, that um, if the Wallabies came calling, he he would consider it. Now, um, I think that uh, you know there's there's an element of of just being open to all offers yeah. on his part in saying that, and he was going to link up with the Lions series uh, for in South Africa uh, last year before that all got a, a bit too complicated with with COVID and, and everything else. But um, I mean, he's uh, as you say, there's, if anyone could turn you know, stamp his own mark on a on a team um, with the way he uh, he runs his runs his teams, it would be Scott Robertson. So fascinating fascinating game to come in in wellington this weekend just to see you know can uh, and we put pose this question at the start of the series i think around um would there be some all blacks fans out there hoping that that they do get rolled um i wonder where that feeling is right now well when you've got a couple of test matches over in south africa to come oh <laughs> to um to, to 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 paraphrase justin marshall bumpfer um there's a lot going to be going on there oh, Anyone that would doubt Scott Robbins' potential to turn a team around only needs to look at the Crusaders, don't they? He came in after eight years of, let's call it failure by yep. Crusaders franchise, yep. standard, and then he's won six straight. So, you know, the fact that he managed to turn around a one with a, a guy, Richie Mawanga, who might have been in his second year at that stage, who hadn't played for the All Blacks, um, to... Uh, there's, I have no doubt in the world that he'd be able to make a difference pretty quickly. And the first thing that he would do is, is probably um, provide a lot of belief. Um, and he knows exactly what the All Blacks is all about. But, but secondly, um, oh, I just think that they, they, they lack clarity at the moment and it, and it shows and it's shown for a long, long time. Um, and that's a really important thing, particularly on the international stage. But we, we, we bring it back to world rugby at the moment. New Zealand dropping back down to fourth in the, news, in the, in the world rugby standings. The first time, a historic low. Look, you can't read too much into that, but it does, it does reveal a trend. And France obviously have been on the out for a couple of years and they deserve to be first for the first time. Ireland two, South Africa three, who after about making about a thousand changes had a, uh, a very tight loss to Gareth Hanscom last conversion of the game, wasn't it, out wide? And, um, for Wales, yep. For, for Wales to scrape home, England five, Australia six. Any of those six nations, I think, have the capacity to win the World Cup. However, you know, you, you think about it, and I think who, who has the ability to be able to win two or three or four big big games in a row? Well, that's the crux of it. You know, the tournament, as we know, basically starts again from the quarterfinal stage. Uh, and if you can put three good games together or at least two and perhaps maybe one where you're not playing your best, you're a, you're a bloody good chance of, of winning it. And we know, we think back to 2007, I think it was uh, the Springboks second title. England were largely dreadful through much of that tournament, got through to the quarters, scraped a couple of wins and then found themselves in a final and, and very nearly won it. But for a, a 50-50 call in the quarter, I think Mark Cueto's try, um, Stuart Dick Dickinson, the TMO on that occasion, multiple looks, it, it could have gone the either way. So yeah, it's it's a new tournament. The World Cup starts when the World Cup starts, and then it starts again at that knockout phase. So um, I think the big thing is, though, is is looking for teams that can string three good performances back to back to back. And at the moment, we, we're probably not seeing that of any of the nations bar France um, and, and Ireland to perhaps a, a lesser extent through through the Six Nations. So I think that's where the rugby championship is, is going to be certainly more revealing for, for the best two contenders out of the, the All Black Springboks and Wallabies from down here and um, and up north, it certainly looks like I, I think France have, have clearly set themselves up at home as as the team to beat. But beyond that, you're right. It's um, you know going to be a, a fascinating tournament uh, next year. And um, who knows, there might be one or two coaching changes between now and then. Hey guys, if you like this podcast and you like footy, why not join myself, Matt Walsh, Jake Michaels and champion data's Christian Jolly as we break down all things footy with the help of the game's best statisticians. Get the ESPN Footy Podcast wherever you stream your podcasts every Tuesday. Let's uh, let's jump across to, to Brizzy now, Christy. Um, 
certainly uh, it's hard to go past um, the first, uh, I guess, 30 minutes of this match um, where England opened up a, a 19-0 lead and, you know, a team of that quality, even though they are without a few down here, that that's going to be certainly incredibly tough for any team to come back and and run them down. Now, the Wallabies had a, had a bloody good crack at doing that. But um, I guess for me, I've, I've got here three big moments in the match that I saw watching it from the Sun Hotel at Richmond. And it was Ellis Genge running over the top of Michael Hooper in, I think, about the second minute. And then later on, after the Wallabies had really shifted the momentum of the match, it was the, the James O'Connor kick out on the full, uh, followed up um, by the full outfying uh, missed line out, uh, not straight. Um, England, as I said, completely dominated that first half. Wallabies got back into the game just before the the halftime siren. Uh, took seven from virtually their first foray into the the English twenty two, and then continued that for much of the second half. Momentum was there, um, and then were just let down in those uh, those key moments that um, probably cost them the chance at at completing what would have been a remarkable comeback win. Yeah, and I might add a fourth one, which was. Um, the decision to turn down the goals and then shortly after the O'Connor inside pass to Marika Korebete, who puts it down, tough yep. ball to his left shoulder, which obviously is difficult when you're running onto it with a head of steam. <clears throat> I kind of put it down to a bit like a, a poker player or a blackjack player who just, you know, is trying to bite off a bit more than they can chew. You, you think about it, the, the Wallabies score a couple of tries and they lose the game and they lose the game because of Alan Farrell's boot. Um, they played a, a match which is which really goes against um, what rugby and Australian rugby stands for, which is you know let's let's do them in threes. And if there was a lesson out of the the 2016 series, it was penalty goals are crucial. Um, <clears throat> do you like to do that on your home soil in Australia, which? People don't like penalty goals. You often hear the argument it should be two points, particularly from those that aren't rugby purists. But that was a, you know, you, you think about moments in hindsight, and I think Dave Rennie even reflected on that, said, look, if we had have taken the three, you never know, you come back down again and you only need three points, do you? And then, and then you're in front. So big, big moment, big missed opportunity there. I, I agree with the, with the first moment that you've highlighted. Ellis Genge running, stampeding over the top of Michael Hooper. Um, I, I haven't seen Michael Hooper fall off a tackle like that too often throughout his career. Yep, I think can't that was remember. His, maybe his 120th test, I think it was. That was a, a moment which just set the tone, didn't it? It was, we've, we're here to play. We're going to hit you where you least want it, and that's through the middle. And the Wallabies have got a rising forward pack, particularly in the front row. Um, and in the back row, but <clears throat> there's still an underbelly, maybe not of softness, but there's an underbelly when you're taking out a few guys like your, like your Isaac Rodders and potentially your Rory Arnolds, your Alan Alatoas, that they're not as quite as big as what they would hope to be. Uh, that, was a, that was a great half an hour there from, from England. And, and it really did show the, the importance of how you can, how many ways you can skin a cat in rugby. I.e., England score a great try from a, a set piece move there at the at the rolling mall, and then they just did it in threes. You know, 13, 19. They could have, they really could have gone for the kitchen sink and gone for another try. But does that win you big games of Test match rugby? What do you think, Sam? Well, it's scoreboard pressure, isn't it? This this yeah. classic old term that. Um, you know, if, you, if you're a team that has the momentum and you, you're constantly putting three points, three points, three points on the board as, as England were, um, you're going to add those up pretty quickly. And, uh, you know, you, defences are pretty good at, at test level right across the board these days. And it only takes one, you know, a millisecond too late to one ruck or, you know, uh, too high into into one tackle and you get held up and you get a turnover that... Um, you know, the defences are and the breakdown work is, is that good and that competitive that um, you by no means guaranteed to score. So at test level, um, you've you got to bank your threes. And, and as you said, England did that in Brizzy on Saturday night. Is there a worrying theme, Sam, about the Wallabies' inability at times to, to turn the screws, to stop the momentum? Because I think about sides like the All Blacks and when the Wallabies lose faith, the faith from the fans, that is, it's because the All Blacks have generally gone 
bang, 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 and they've scored three or four tries, and all of a sudden it's 26 nil or 30 nil or whatever it might be. You know, I think about even even in 2020, I know that there was changes at 10 and 12 there, but um, you know they've they've had two very competitive games across the ditch, and then and then they're like a, a sieve, and there's holes through them, and they haven't been able to stop that massive wave of momentum and I got that same feeling a little bit against England you know clearly they managed to change that and they did that off a massive scrum um, penalty win where they were losing that that in the first 20 minutes a couple of kind of hinging and and you know angling from the side I think it was Tanilla was was pinged for but they managed to change that when they got some possession but I even roll it back to when Noel Oliseo, and, and I like the, his, his confidence and I like the fact that he's a, a, a player that can run to the line. He can, he can pass and he kick. He's a talented player. But when you don't have any of the ball early on and his first touch around halfway was a chip over the top and it was a poor one and Freddie Stewart manages to pick it up pretty easily and then the opportunity from first phase is gone. Um, it's different when you're on the opposition 22. When you're on halfway doing that with one of your first touches the game, when you haven't had any ball in the first six minutes, I'm just not sure that's the right option. And it just, it you need to settle into the game. And there was moments there that they were trying to run from inside the 22 and decide the first 10, 15 minutes where it was a bit baffling because it's not test match rugby. And I know that Tom Wright had a brilliant game and he started to run the ball more and more throughout the game. But, in the first 10, 15 minutes of a test, oh, I'm not sure. No, you're right. And, and, and I think it's symptomatic, Christy, of a wider problem here for the Wallabies, which is they're just not coming out of the blocks. And, um, you know, it was the same against France last year. I think in all three tests there, despite winning the series 2-1, they conceded, um, you know, early tries or early points. I think they were it was, uh, the winger, Villiers, might have scored two tries first up in Brisbane, and then they might have been down perhaps 15-6 in the second test and something similar again in the third. Now, obviously managed to come back and win those two and obviously won um, after conceding an early deficit in Perth too. But, geez, it makes life tough for yourselves, doesn't it, when you're, um, you know, you're coming out and and you're not actually stamping your authority on the match early on. And, and I thought that began on the weekend with the Wallabies' first exit where, where Nick White um, went to the box kick and, um, didn't find touch, uh, wanted to keep it in play. And, and suddenly England got the ball and, and almost rolled forward immediately from that. And the Genge uh, trampling of, of Michael Hooper followed that um, after that, uh, that Wallabies exit. And, and that was the, you know, the platform was laid for the next 30 minutes from, from then on. So yeah, if, if I'm Dave Rennie this week, I'm just uh, ramming home the importance of, of, you know, starting well, because um, as we know, there's, uh, there's no second chances at the knockout, stage of the world cup is there as we were just saying that um to win uh, to win the world cup you can do so after playing maybe potentially ordinarily in the in the pool phase but um you've got to start to get things right from the knockout phase and if you you start pulling you leave yourself chasing a game then uh it's a long way back and it's it's probably going to be a long way home um from then onwards uh, a flight back from from Charles de Gaulle airport in in Paris uh, all the way back to Kingsford Smith so yeah uh hugely important this week in in Sydney um now there was obviously and just, just sorry, before mate, we yeah. leave there, there's there's a stat there that's quite good that since the Rugby World Cup 2019, Australia's trailed at halftime in 11 tests and they've lost and they've lost 10 of them. There you go. So that that tells you all you need to know. Now they've been very competitive and often come back in those sorts of ones, but and we know that that's in part been because they've injected a Taniella Tupo or a, or a Angus Bell or a Tate McDermott off the bench, but. The Wallabies didn't get nearly enough from their bench on the weekend either. Um, and, and that was in part, I think, because of the injuries that they were suffering right throughout. We'll probably touch upon that now, I dare say, because where the heck do they you know, get these players from? They've lost 10 in the last 10 days. Yeah, and I was, had me wondering last night whether, whether this is a delayed effect of of COVID that we've, um, you know, we've had two years down here where we had separate AU and Aotearoa competitions. And then only last year with the, the Trans-Tasman competition coming together. And it just had me wondering whether, you know, the fact that there was a, a 14 week Super Rugby Pacific competition or sorry, 14 games per, per team. Plus, you know, the Brumbies obviously played a, a couple more. Um, 
Is it something around, you, you know, the changing um, number of games? Although I guess it's pretty similar given the AU competition was was home and away. So there's eight plus another five. So you're only missing one game. But the fact that it was continually back-to-back once the, the season got going, despite having a um, some breaks in between those other competitions previously, I don't know, just a, just a thought I had um, in terms of the actual physical workload and the preparation and, yeah. you know, um, just the what? actual toll on the body. My thoughts are that you, you look at what's happening over at, uh, with England as well, and ever since Eddie Jones has been there, when players come into camp, it seems like some breakdown. And I wonder whether or not the standard and, and people t- pe- people are saying that um, that the Wallabies have managed to to come back. And da- Sorry, Dave Rennie, just had a call coming through. Um, people have been saying that, and Dave Rennie, we're not fit enough. And Michael Checker would say the same thing. And when they come into camp, they absolutely smash them. Now, England and Eddie Jones say the exact same thing. So is it a fact that strength and conditioning, the fitness, the standards that have been demanded at you know, the English Premiership or Super Rugby aren't nearly good enough to prepare players at test level? I wonder if that's the reason because we've seen a number of players break down in the Wallabies camp. And it hasn't actually... You know, this honeymoon period that Dave Rennie has enjoyed thus far, it hasn't actually kind of, the discussion hasn't been raised yet because of that. And maybe there's not the pressure from a rugby Australia media as the hostile one that Eddie Jones will get up there. But you think about it, you know, Pone Farmasili, Sully Bunabalu's, the, the, you know, Jed Holloway's, the Andrew Kellaway's, these are injuries that have been uh, occurring at, training at the Wallabies. So, yeah, I wonder if there's a bit in that. And interesting to note that the World Rugby does have these guidelines uh, and an old colleague of our, Tony Harper, actually put those to, um, I think, uh, Dave Rennie, head of the first test around... Dan, Dan um, McKellar, I think. Dan McKellar, sorry, apologies around, you know, whether these were being followed in, in Wallabies camp. Well, no, not really, because they're not legislated. So teams are just going to prepare as, as they say fit. But... Um, you know, one to consider from that front as well. Uh, let's go through, uh, I guess, mate, the injuries or at least the additions to the squad. Um, uh, an incredible story building around Lucan Salakai-Loto, um, for one, who was basically cast aside by Brad Thorne at the Reds this season after an, an injury early on, um, had signed to Northampton, was announced, I think, about midway through Super Rugby Pacific and and was barely sighted thereafter, wasn't taken to New Zealand for the finals uh, in Christchurch when you would have thought his experience playing uh, what were back-to-back games there to, uh, in the final round and then the quarterfinal could have been valuable. He now finds himself um, with the injuries at, at Lock and, of course, the red card to, to Darcy Swain. So no Darcy Swain, no Isaac Rudder was announced, obviously, before the series. And now Caden Neville as well uh, with, an, with an injury picked up in, in Brizzy. Jed Holloway seems to be tracking towards he might be able to make his debut, but that would be a a big call certainly. And so, so here is Lucan, um, you know, poised to potentially play one final test before he packs up shop and, and heads overseas. Uh, and the other one, Mark uh, Nwanga coming in for, for cover on the wing for Izzy Parisi. Uh, Reese Hodge also announced um, last week. So uh, I, I mean, uh, probably Mark, maybe not given that Suli has been in the squad for this time is 100% fit. So we understand um, you know, do you expect him to be unleashed this week? Um, but certainly uh, reward for what uh, what Mark showed for the Waratahs this season and what was his best Super Rugby season yet? Yeah, it's an interesting one. To begin with, with Mark, I think his ceiling is so high. We've, been, yep. we've spoken about that in the past. Athletic, he, athletically, he's brilliant. The, the big concern has been defensively um, and physically. It, it, can, he, can he make those tackles? Because he's a slender, slender kind of guy. I can't imagine him coming in, but he he's got a. It was included in the Aussie Sevens squad for the the campaign uh, around the corner in Birmingham. Yep. So a good opportunity to bring him in and go. Okay, what's this guy like? Because we've seen his freakish ability to find the try line. He's probably one of the best finishers in Australian rugby, um, and we've seen what he can do aerially in terms of being able to plant the ball just inside and just in the field of play. And, I think he's a, a real player for the future. I, I can't imagine him playing against England this weekend uh, at all. Um, 
the Sorley Bunapala one's an interesting one. And, and whether or not Australia have a 5-3 split or a 6-2 split is going to be crucial to whether or not he plays or not. If he if he doesn't play um, and they go for a 6-2, I, I imagine a James O'Connor and a Tate McDermott potentially come onto the bench. Um, Tate has that ability to play a little bit of wing as well. I, I agree the fact. And he's, he's something that England haven't seen yet. Yeah. And there's this defend against Tate. McDermott from watching on film and then there's also being in the moment that he is yeah. such a small slight little bloke that he has got the ability to to bounce himself off big guys um with his footwork with his kind of hit and spin um I, I think that would present a, a new picture for for England to to look at so certainly one to consider there I agree yeah and, and James O'Connor if you if you were to do that James O'Connor could potentially wear that 23 jersey or indeed he could start at 15 and Reese Hodge wear that 23 jersey because he covers so much. I I think it'd be a big bold decision to start James O'Connor. I think the more likely equation is that Reese Hodge starts at 15. Um he's not been in great form um but he's a guy that's played 50 tests um has played at fullback before um, and then that way you maybe leave Tom Wright there. If there's an injury, you could potentially bring Tom Wright to fullback. He had a great match. That was his best game in, in gold. Um, we've always marveled at what he can do. It's about doing it consistently. But the thing that I like about a Tom Wright at fullback, and I, and I liked this about Jordan Bataille, unfortunately he got injured so early, is I think those two guys want the ball all, as much as they can. But when they're on the wing, at times, the ball doesn't go there. So they try to just push the ledger too much and push it too far. And that's where those, those silly mistakes come in because they try to overplay their hand. But we saw what Tom Wright can do. He's an elusive guy. He's a, he's a bloke that can run, pass, kick. We saw that he was safe under the high ball on the weekend as well. Um, it's a really intriguing prospect what they do because by building a bit of depth in that jersey at the moment, it's not a bad thing, exposing that. Unfortunately, we would like to see Geordie Pattaya, but the 6-2 split will be an interesting one. And you come back now to Luca and Salakai Loto. The, the one reason why I think he will struggle to make it is that we've seen that Dave Rennie is all about work rate and he's about... Um, how quick a player gets repeat up off efforts. the ground and yep. repeat efforts. And for a guy that hasn't been playing super rugby for a long while, hasn't been in the, in the national setup, has been playing club rugby, and by all reports, from what I understand, has been doing a good job. But are you going to be putting in, preparing for a match like a Wallabies one when you're playing for Souths in Brisbane? Absolutely not. So I can't see him being picked unless there's a real concern around the second row. I would like. You know, if had he been in the mix or with Australia A, I would have liked to have seen him come in because he's got some muscle. He, he does run too high at times with the ball into contact, but he's the sort of guy that will provide a little bit physically. And I think that's going to be necessary against an English pack, which is now thinking we can smell up. we can smell blood. Let's go after, let's bash these guys to 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 um to repeat what Taniella Tupo said in, on Thursday when he spoke about wanting to bash Elish Genge. Clearly, Genge gets the better there, even though Tupo had a, had a good game himself, particularly either side of halfway, uh, half-time. So that's the concern. Does a Matt Phillip, Nick Frost second-row pairing scare you? No, it doesn't at all. Does a, a, a Matt Phillip, Rob Leota pairing concern you? I don't think it does either. Um, Leota is an interesting one. Do you pick him at six or do you pick him on the bench or indeed at lock? Um, they've got some, some concerns there. And, and this also comes back to, is it the best practice to have three backs as your international picks when, when you've got a, uh, a Quade Cooper who's injury prone? I'm not sure it does. And in addition to that, when a Isaac Rodder is ruled out, is it, it, does Australia have the luxury? Is Australia's second rows? Um, that good that you can pass up a, a, an Arnold and go, we'll bring you back later on? I don't think so. I don't think when it comes to international rugby, Australia has big enough, media enough second rollers to, to pass up some of those guys. It's a good point. And, and particularly, I guess, one we look at now in hindsight and, and in fairness to Dave Rennie and the rest of the Wallaby selectors, there were concerns around, obviously, the French season going you know, virtually up until the, the squad was was gathering. So is it best served? But 
um, you know, had they been brought into the squad, maybe not in played, even played in in Brisbane and, and Perth, but then still been available for Sydney um, to account for this this run, as you say, coming up against a, an English pack that that does have such great depth and is particularly physical and abrasive and and is everything we've known about, you know, in the England side. Uh, virtually across the, the history of professional rugby. So um, interesting one there. I want to dig in on your thoughts around Rob Liotta potentially shifting into the second row to partner Matt Phillip. That would, of course, open up this situation where Harry Wilson, we would see, you would think, for the first time since, I think, the, the first test against France in Brizzy last year. So more than 12 months. Um, or oh, sorry, no, right on about 12 months, thinking back to the timings last year. Um has been training away, hasn't kicked up a stink, hasn't been kicking stones, was left at home on the spring tour last year, um, fully understood what he ne- needed to do, came back and had a very good Super Rugby season, won the Stan Pilecki medal for the Queensland Reds. And, and Georgina Robertson in the Herald today has touched on all this, that perhaps it is time for Harry Wilson to come back in. Um, now, you and I are both on the record of saying that we we don't see the the back row of, of Valentini, Hooper and and Wilson at least being a first choice. Um, but given the injuries now, is it something you would like to see? And, you know, I'm keen to see whether the changes that Harry has made at Super Rugby level and obviously winning that that award for the Reds this year can be transferred into a Wallabies um, environment. And again, a bit like Tate McDermott, he's something new. He's something that England won't have seen from an on-field perspective. I, I, you know, Eddie Jones is so meticulous in his preparation. I'm sure he's watched plenty of a film on Harry, but um, it's one thing to watch film. It's another to, to come out and, and defend against him and, and see how he moves around the, how he fits into the, the Wallaby structures and, and everything else. So yeah, maybe it has rolled around again. Like he, he's such been such a huge talking point uh, in Australian rugby this year. And certainly one of our bigger podcasts for the year really blew up on social media around you and I agreeing that this is not a, a trio that we, we thought we'd see. Um, but here we are, the injuries have happened and, and certainly, uh, I, for one, um, if faced with potentially, you know, starting Nick Frost and, and Matt Phillip or or Salakai Loto and, and Matt Phillip, um, you know, it's something about Rob Leota going to the second row and seeing Harry does appeal to me, I must admit it. Yeah, and the other thing that we've got to consider is England's actually lost a few players themselves yeah, in the forwards, yeah. not so much in the backs, but they've lost Mara Toja. Underhill uh, now as well. Carly yeah. Yule, Sam Underhill, Tom Curry. Um, they've lost four of their regular starters. So their, their pack's not as strong, as intimidating as it, what it usually is. Um, do, will we see a Courtney Laws shift to, to the second row? Probably not. He'll probably still play at six with a, a Jack Willis coming in. At, well, Jack Willis coming onto the bench, maybe a Lewis Ludlam coming on at, at seven. I, I think we're caught up a little bit in the, in the, in the love affair of... of of a player here, you know, with Harry Wilson's a gem of a guy. He's a bloke that loves playing for the Wallabies. Is that enough at times? I don't know if it is. And and we've got to put that emotion to the side. I think at times, I think Harry Wilson will provide a lot and I expect he'll be in this 23. I think he, he, he's the sort of guy that loves playing alongside a Tate McDermott and a Fraser McWright. They've played a lot together. Yep. It's difficult. It's different, and it's difficult to come in when you haven't played with these guys all that much and have the same impact, to have the same running lines. We could well see Harry Wilson start at eight, and I don't think that there would be a person in Australia who wouldn't like and doesn't think he should be rewarded. Um, he should. Everything you said there, it was bang on the money. Before, uh, I think if a Jed Holloway is fit, I I I can see them almost going, we'll go with the Jed Holloway at second yep. row and six and have a slightly different um, complexion around that 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 forward make-up. Um, it's, it's a big ask. I, I don't think Pete Samu is the right option either, necessarily. I, I think he does add a lot, but he adds so much in that last 20 minutes. And, and we've seen it in the past. Finishes are really important. And Eddie Jones is at pains to, 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 to tell and to show that. God, teams that can come on and explode in the last 20 minutes, like what we saw in Perth, win, often will win games if they're in the fight. We probably will see that, I reckon, at the SCG on, on Saturday night, where it's going to be a hammer and tong kind of battle early on. Physicality is going to be really, really important. And if you can then lift the speed of the game, the tempo of the game in the last 20 minutes, 
you might be onto something. And that's why that 6-2 split, I think, could be a, a really positive, strong option. And we might see a Salakai Loto then if it is a 6-2 split too, because you can afford to carry that extra lock. You can afford to carry that extra um, flanker as well. So, yeah, watch that space on this one. It's a really intriguing makeup of this, this squad. Um, you know, and also it's not just there, it's the front row. Um, with Alan Alatoa, we expect him to be fit to have passed the, the concussion protocols. I haven't got that confirmed yet, but if that is the case, does he come off the bench, start? James Slipper probably comes back. Angus Bell had to put in a massive shift of about 78 minutes. Yep. Do, do you try to balance it out as well by having some more run off the bench, maybe with a bell, bring him on with 30 so he doesn't have to contend with that that big 50 like he had to on the weekend. Um, we know that James Slipper probably came on at about that with about 25 to go or so, and he'll prefer clearly jumping back on the loose head side. So some there's some really big questions to ask to ponder around that. And, and it'll be fascinating when we find out a little bit more about over the next day or so. Yeah, some, uh, some key selection meetings to come up over the next uh, 48 hours. You would suspect, um, although they probably embedded uh, much of their thinking already. Uh, mate, we, we better then have a, uh, have a tip to, to wrap up. I think you and I both said uh, 2-1 to start the series. Um, it's certainly going to come out that way for, for one team. Well, not guaranteed, of course, could be a draw. Uh, one team or the other, more likely than not. Um, I guess if, for me, even considering with the, the gold-tinted glasses on, is that I think the Wallabies, when they have the momentum, are playing the better rugby. Um, we saw it in Perth yep. to start with, that when they get on the front foot inside that 22 and and even to a to a lesser extent in Brisbane, um, I think if, you know, if JOC doesn't kick that ball out in the full, if Fyinger doesn't muff that line out, I think the Wallabies probably go on to win that one, even despite everything that they they had to overcome, including the 19-0 the deficit i'm not convinced that england when they have had the front football um despite being able to accumulate scoreboard pressure as we discussed earlier and that's really a an art in itself that they still look a little bit muddled in exactly what they're trying to do um you spoke about uh noel obviously kicking the ball away earlier i think um marcus smith may have kicked it about three times in the first five minutes after after izzy parisi was, was sent yeah, to send in yeah and he did that early on and and marika corabetti did a good job by tidying up and somehow kicking the ball up to about the 10 metre line. That was a great clearance on his own goal line. I wonder whether or not Marcus Smith and the game plan was to try to expose the fullback. They knew that Jordan Batias hardly spent a minute there. Similarly, um, Tom Wright, not not at international rugby. My thoughts are that they would have gone, let's let's turn them around and and kind of try to muddle their thinking, put early pressure on them. That's my thought there with that one. Anyway, um, I, I'm going to be bold and I'm going to say the Wallabies going to win this one 2-1. Just on the strength of, of what I've seen from when they, when they do get things together, when they do click, but um, with the caveat that they, they've got to start well. If they don't start well, they won't win the game because I, I think England are you know, quite good front runners despite being you know, very nearly run down last weekend. They continue to, to take the goals and build that scoreboard pressure. The Wallabies can't play from, play from behind this week in, in Sydney. If they're going to win this one, and I think they can, um, they've simply got to start well. That's a good point. Um, I the, the one thing that is has held me back from tipping them is I don't know an international side, particularly that the Wallabies, that have ever been able to handle about 10 injuries. Their depth has been absolutely pushed. I thought they did a brilliant job in Brisbane and they didn't. They shouldn't have lost a single fan um, despite losing. And, and you've not always been able to say that about an Australian team. I, I just think that losing 10, that second row and that sixth position is, is really problematic. Um, you've got a Reese Hodge or a James O'Connor that's either not in form or hasn't played enough minutes to get themselves back into form. They're, they're the two areas that concern me. At least England's going to be able to have a, a pretty settled back line, I think, this weekend. Yep. Um, they clearly have issues in the two row and it's and at, and at six and seven themselves. Um, they'll probably say keep laws there. But my hunch is England just by a whisker. Um, I think that the fact that they won't be able to be able to bring on as much um, 
off the bench is a concern. But I think your point's a really valid one around the momentum, about the fact that they've been able to capitalise and to be able to score quickly when they've had that momentum. Do you have that same momentum at the SCG, though, when the crowd further removes and not quite on top of you, as we saw, um, you know, definitely in Brisbane and to a lesser extent in Perth, but it was still a, it's quite a theatre over in Perth. You don't get that quite the same theatre at the SCG, um, being on just. Yeah, it's uh, it's obviously such a historic venue, not just for for cricket. I mean, there's been some some fantastic rugby tests and, and huge crowds at, at the venue going back um, before the onset of professionalism and, of course, the, the building of the, the Sydney Football Stadium. But from uh, both a, a spectator and a media perspective, uh, we're about to see the very, uh, pretty much the, the chalk and cheese in viewing because we know we're only now about, what, six weeks away from from seeing um, the new Allianz Stadium uh, right next door, ready for action. And, and you and I were both in there for the for the, the announcement of that first uh, three events um, to come uh, at the venue when it, when it opens uh, in September, uh, which the, the Wallabies and the Springboks are the second and the first international event to be played there. It's fantastic inside there, um, but it's not going to be so fantastic at the, the SCG. This weekend, but I'm sure uh, plenty of punters uh, are heading along. Uh, ticket sales have been really strong, I believe. And, and yeah, I think they're only um, about, about a thousand short at this stage. I think they'll they'll sell that out. Look, it's it's a very historic game. It could be the last Test match there ever. You can't imagine there being another one. It's, again, it's, no. it's not the best viewing experience, but we haven't seen it with more than fifteen thousand there, really, have we, for a rugby game? So no. I think it will be. Dr- Definitely different. I think it'll be a better positive experience with a packed house. Um, last match there, it could indeed be the last three-match test series. I have my doubt on that, but it could be as well. Um, there's a lot riding on this. And, you know, Eddie Jones, Jones's job is safe for now. Uh, the, Dave Rennie's job is safe for now. Um, that won't be changing before the World Cup. But in terms of momentum, in terms of runways, you know, I think it would be worse if the Wallabies were to lose this one than England. However, given the massive injury toll, I think you'll be able to um, make an argument either way there. You just want to see the performance. You want to see a strong performance leading into a rugby championship where for once you're not starting against the All Blacks, but in fact, you're starting against Argentina. You're going to play South Africa on home soil. There's a good opportunity for the Wallabies to build momentum here. Yeah, you're absolutely right, mate. Couldn't have put it better yourself. It's got the feeling of a, not just from a, clearly it's going to decide the series, but um, the knock-on effects and and psychologically uh, ahead of the World Cup. Um, it's, uh, it's a, you know, we're only down to a, like a 14-month runway now to that tournament. And this really feels like, as you say, a vital game for Australia, certainly, that um, win this and build from there into Argentina and South Africa into the rugby championship and and, and who knows, but, but lose this and suddenly a, a two-week tour of Argentina um, without Samu Karevi um, and potentially a few others uh, injury-wise, uh, starts to look a little bit scarier than perhaps it did uh, a few weeks ago. My final thought is it'll be very interesting what they do around the 13 jersey for the Wallabies this weekend. We didn't discuss it before. You won't discuss it now, but I'm just going to leave it there. We, Hunter Baisami had a couple of great touches, a couple of great moments on the weekend. The first rugby in a little while. Do they stick tight with with him or do they go to Lenny Yikatao, who they very much like his left foot, they like his defensive prowess? It'll be interesting to see what they do there. Absolutely. And I'd just like to say that hopefully we won't see too many cards this weekend. That would be my Did we one. talk about it? I don't, I don't know. We didn't even. We didn't even. So I'm just going to say, you know what? I've got short-term amnesia. Uh, can't remember what happened on that front uh, in week two of, of the July internationals, but um you know, it just, uh, just popped into my head, you know, maybe this weekend um, we'll keep the reds and or yellows uh, in the pocket. Uh, I'd be pretty happy about that, uh, mate. All right. Uh, great pod. Great to be back after a short little break. Um, we'll jump on again Sunday to, to wrap up the series. Uh, can't wait. See you out there on Saturday night and uh, yeah, enjoy the game. See you at the SCG. Cheers.